Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. So welcome back, everyone. I'm really excited to finish our conversation with Dr. Rash uh, from Newfoundland and dig further into how the profession of psychology can be impactful for individuals with lived experience of chronic pain. I would love to have a Dr. Rash in my back pocket. Uh, It's just such an important resource that we need to embrace more of and work collaborative with in the work that we do. So for me, when I think about it, like my practice um, so when I think about something like, so we just had a, the release of some clinical practice guidelines by the peer group out, uh, out in Alberta. So Dr. Tina Koronik is the main researcher in this. So the, and so one of the main recommend, I mean, what it showed overall is that a lot of what we're doing is just not working. Like we're really missing the mark uh, when we're looking at therapies that we can offer patients with, with, uh, who are living with, uh, complex pain or chronic pain. And, uh, so when I look at, and so one of the main recommendations was that activity was good. The activity, um, had to be something that the patient wanted to do. So if you take that recommendation, cause I immediately, I thought, no kidding. Like I'm sure, I'm sure most healthcare providers know that physical activity for patients is good. That's not the issue. The issue is, is how do you get people to embrace, um, activity, uh, for them that is gonna, well, there are two things that become really important when I think about it. One is they have to see the joy of movement, right? The joy has to be there. So the pleasure principle has to be there, but it also has to feel safe. If we use the analogy of, you know, uh, that fear of movement or sort of that, uh, because patients with chronic pain do have a uh, challenge, not because they can't physically do it. It's just that they're, they're really fearful of worsening pain if they go, because they've had that experience. Obviously they've had significant flare ups, but if we approach it from the, uh, the area of, well, if we can get them to find an activity that they want to do, that, that they're going to f- really enjoy doing, but to approach it in a way that feels safe to them. So it's not about walking 15 minutes twice a day because that immediately does not feel safe to most patients who live with chronic pain. Um, not because it's, it's a dangerous kind of thing. It's just that to their nervous system, to their body, it's not going to feel safe. But if we allow them to sort of, I'll give you an example. Sorry, I'm just mumbling on here. So I had a a, a patient with significant pain who uh, basically was spending tremendous amounts of time uh, in her bed resting. So she was disconnecting. There were some other issues there, but disconnecting primarily from from the family unit, spent a lot of time there, but that's the place that she felt the safest. She, she found it very difficult to try to explain to her family what she was feeling. She didn't feel that she was being validated. So what we try to do is to say, okay, well, let's just meet her where she is, you know, using that terminology of motivational interviewing. But so why don't we start an activity that would feel safe in that space and lying down is where she felt safe. So we'd start the activity with her lying down and then gradually bringing her up to another, another level, but then adding in something that would bring pleasure. And so, you know, like music or dance or things like that. So I'm just curious about uh, so trying to merge that non-invasive neuroimaging with what we do every day. So safety, that safety concept becomes such an important way of how we approach things, safe words, safe, safe activities, safe, safe everything for that patient. I'm just curious about your thoughts about that. 
That, that one is, is quite interesting. One is I, I'm completely in agreement with the notion that the most effective treatment and therapies will be the ones that um, clients or people living with pain are actually willing to engage in. I mean, you know, history is wrought with really effective treatments that um, have very little uptake by certain individuals because they're very challenging and those individuals might not be ready. Um, I think what you've described sounds lovely in terms of working with that um, patient in their bed where they felt safe. I think that though um, safety is is an interesting dynamic and one that we shouldn't always presume that the person that we're working with has that very clear representation of what is safe. And the best example I can give you there is sometimes uh, with clients, it's really, really helpful to uh, to, to really discuss and dig into the difference between discomfort and pain. And so some people might, you know, perceive that only doing activities that result in no pain whatsoever is are safe. When in reality, it might be worthwhile having a discussion to really listen to their body and understand what kind of movements are resulting in discomfort and where is that differentiation between discomfort and pain for them. So I think relying totally on safety may be a bit of a misnomer while important certainly i think that it might be a bit more nuanced than that yeah so i guess that kind of brings in the uh, uh and alan gordon talks a little bit about this in his book about somatic tracking which is a term that i hadn't heard before but uh primarily what it is it's just a form of mindfulness or awareness that um what what he, what he's trying to do is help patients understand that their chronic pain or what he describes it as neuroplastic, obviously from uh, neuroplasticity, is basically very different than structural triggers. And that, you know, sometimes what we have to be able to do is distinguish between what is neuroplastic versus what is structural. And to tell yourself that you're safe when you're feeling that neuroplastic, that there's nothing dangerous or bad happening, which is really hard for people to do because it feels like very unnatural to not pay attention to pain. So, yeah, they almost have to buy into the fact that, okay, this is not dangerous or this is not damaging when I'm doing this. Do you find that, is that a similar way to think about it or? Yes. And, and that's, um, you know, that, that's a very good way of talking about it. Uh, and again, pain from an evolutionary perspective, it demands attention first yeah. for our own safety, but it also from a communicative function, because pain is inherently transactional, it signals to members of the same species that there is something potentially threatening. So, so pay attention to it. So really what we're asking people to do is, um, contrary to their evolutionary development as a species. So I couldn't agree more. One of the things that I find to be really helpful um, is to use analogies and imagery to try to break clients' associations with some of these very complex and challenging dynamics like pain. The idea that, you know, an, an alarm signal, let's call it uh, a fire alarm or a smoke alarm detector, you know, pain can be seen as very similar to that. And when it goes off, yes, oftentimes it does mean that there's very real danger and threat. It means there could be smoke, could be fire, but at the same time, those systems aren't perfect. And sometimes they can go awry. And I think using that mental imagery and having them see the notion that I can view this as an alarm that is stuck on because of something that has happened. And I don't always have to pay attention to it. And there are things that I can do to quiet it down. I think those kind of um, lessons and, and thoughts can be very helpful for clients. Yeah. And I think it's important too that uh, the the whole thing about the self-talk, you know, so important in terms of how we build that resiliency. And uh, 
um, letting them know that they they do have um, that we are resilient as humans, um, and telling themselves that they've got this. You know, I think is going to be really important as well. So we're t- we're sort of talking about the different like mindfulness and mindfulness was something that always kind of perplexed me because it always sounded like work. <laughs> I don't know why, but. One of my colleagues actually said, no, no, Maureen, it's just all it is, it's awareness. But you often hear this term mindfulness-based stress reduction. So how is that different from mindfulness? Are they exactly the same thing? Um, So mindfulness-based stress reduction is a bit different. So oftentimes when we think about mindfulness, uh, we are trying to cultivate um, really, it's best to be described sometimes as a beginner's mindset. So really what you're doing is you're having people have present focused awareness. So present focus meaning anchored within the present time, because if we're anchored in the future, we could be um, falling prey to worry. If we're anchored in the past, we could be falling prey to rumination. So we really want to focus on the here and now. Within mindfulness, there's also the idea of being um, non-judgmental about the experience. So that could be painful experiences, the experience of negative emotions, uh, sadness, grief, loss, but also pain itself. Uh, and non-reactive. So the idea that we want to just give attention and awareness to what's going on and let it wash over us like a wave without reacting to it. Um, Mindfulness would really be trying to um, induce that mindset. Mindfulness-based stress reduction um, is a program of uh, strategies and techniques to train people to be more mindful, more aware, less reactive, uh, and less judgmental about painful emotions, thoughts, and feelings. So it really is a structured, it's traditionally um, eight sessions with a six-hour retreat uh, after session four. So we've done a variety of different um, mindfulness-based stress reduction programs for people with chronic pain who have developed neuropathic pain after breast cancer. Most recently, we ran a trial for um, individuals who were clergy within the United States, within North Carolina, uh, and it was during COVID. So we got to see some profound impacts there as well. Wow. Wow. That sounds fascinating. Um, so would you, um, so the first time I heard of third wave psychotherapies, I thought what happened to the first and the second wave? So I wonder if you can help explain that out a little bit more, because that is an area that I think, because I hear about acceptance, commitment therapy, mindfulness-based therapy, but can you give me an overview of what the, the those particular therapies are and what the first and second uh, wave were? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's a history lesson. <laughs> I, well, it almost it almost feels like when when we're talking about third waves, it almost feels like um, where's the differentiation? Where was first wave, and how is it different? Uh, and and I have to say. Largely speaking, when we're thinking about first wave therapies, uh, even when we talk about first wave cognitive behavioral therapies, they were really more learning um, theories that promoted behavioral um, the- behavioral therapy rather than cognitive behavioral therapy. So the first wave therapies really occurred um, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s when we were looking at um, operant conditioning and how people were conditioned to behave in certain ways. And we were much more focused on breaking those conditioned habits through behaviors. Uh, The second wave cognitive behavioral therapies really refer to the pioneer work by uh, Aaron Beck and his idea that um, the thoughts uh, that we have are just as important as the behaviors and really focusing on people's thoughts, their assumptions to get at those inner core beliefs, and then challenging those assumptions and thoughts to slowly start to shift some of the core beliefs that might be driving our behaviors. And so again, that was that's much more 
what we think of as traditional cognitive behavioral therapy and what people probably presume are those first wave therapies, but actually they fall under the second wave. The third wave therapies really started when we started to include acceptance-based and mindfulness-based practices into present second wave therapies. And so third wave cognitive behavioral therapies include things like acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, dialectic behavioral therapy is also considered a third wave um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mindfulness-based stress reduction for many would um, consist, it would also fall under that larger umbrella and constitute a third wave cognitive behavioral therapy. Interesting. Um, it sounds like a lot of work, though, trying to figure them all out. And, and so do you have any suggestions, Joss, when you think about you know, someone like me, my clinical practice, I mean, I do have a real interest in this and, and I'm always trying to find ways because oftentimes what I find, you know, it depends on the environment that I'm in as well, but you get this wall that comes up and um, you're, tr you're trying to have a conversation with the patient, but they're obviously not in that, in that mindset. Do you have any suggestions? Is it something that, I mean, I think what I think my sometimes what, what I tell myself is that that patient, you know, you know, you want to pick your fights and roll with resistance, even though I don't see it as a fight. Um, but that that patient is either for, through information overload or just being in the space that they're in, um, that probably it's not the best time to try and connect. One of the things that I find, though, is that especially in the emergency department, I keep coming back to this space because it is the place where I find I see so much chronic pain and I see so much suffering for patients. And you have this brief opportunity to connect with someone in order to help them maybe see a different direction. Um, but there's these walls that go up. Is there anything that we can be doing or what we shouldn't be doing, obviously, uh, when we're meeting somebody where they are in those kinds of spaces when the walls are up? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Maureen. And I think one that um, every healthcare professional listening to this will resonate with. Um, I think first and foremost, it's important to really consider who is who is this for? Is this conversation mm. for me as a provider? Um, if so, then you might want to try to force the agenda. But if it's really for the person who's living with pain, then I think you really are best served to meet them with their at. And so for me, that means reiterating to them that I think that this is really important and it could be very important in particular for these reasons, X, Y, and Z. You, you may not take up this information and knowledge and go forward with it. And that's your choice. It's completely up to you. No one here is going to force you to try this approach or maybe um, go home and, and read more about this. But if you want to, and if you're ready to, any point, any time you want to talk to me about it, please come back um, and we can have a discussion. So really it's meeting the person where they're at and then maybe providing them with resources. So I go back to the stages of change. Um, you described it as a wall. To me, it would uh, probably be the notion that somebody is in an earlier stage of change. So when we think of stages of change, uh, it's a classic theory from Prochaska and DiClemente, which suggests that people can be in any stage of change to take up a complex behavior, uh, much like some many of the chronic pain self-management strategies, which are quite complex behaviors that re require complex behavior change. Pre-contemplation would be a stage where somebody is not even contemplating making a change. It's not really on their radar at this point in time. The contemplation stage would mean that the person is ready and willing to hear more about it. They're contemplating making a change within the near future. Preparation would be the next stage of change where somebody is actively taking in information and getting things together to prepare to take action. After that, we have the action stage where people are 
already starting to put tools and principles into practice and take action. If somebody has been engaging in behavior change for usually three to six months or more, uh, we put them in the maintenance phase, meaning that they've developed a habit and now they're maintaining that habit moving forward. So it's important to note that the stages of change are fluid. People are not always at the, do not always go through the stages in a linear fashion. But what you had described uh, as that wall, to me, that's a person who you could ask, you know, have you thought about, um, let's say, engaging in activity pacing? Have you even considered it? If they say no, is it something you'd like to hear more about? If they say no again, then they're probably at pre-contemplation. If they say yes, they might be at contemplation. For those clusters of individuals, consciousness and awareness raising exercises actually um, have the most empirical support for leading to behavior change in the future. So for me, it would be having engaging handouts ready, uh, maybe referring somebody to some of the excellent resources that we have. If it's mental health related, maybe they want to go to Wellness Together Canada, which is um, a website uh, to manage Canada's psychosocial response to the pandemic and contains tons of resources for mental health and substance use. Sorry, that's my shameless plug, Maureen. No, that's that sounds awesome, actually. No, I, I think the more we can explore some of these resources, and uh, I think most of us are kind of just feeling that we're starting to come a bit out of COVID, but uh, man, oh man, there's still, it is, it, you know, people are struggling still. It's, it's really crazy. I, I do find a lot, I'm not sure in your profession, but I know in our profession, uh, definitely there's a ton of burnout that's happening uh, around COVID, especially around the front end part of it. So a lot of our resources in the communities were shut down. And so it, uh, patients were directed mostly to emergency departments. And uh, we're definitely, I think we've lost about, you know, maybe 60, 70% of our nursing staff. And uh, so there's this huge turnover that's happening right now. But uh, but that that wellness piece around COVID, I think, is is a wonderful resource that we're going to sort of dig into. <laughs> Yes. Um, would it be helpful, Maureen, if I uh, told you a little bit about some of the things that psychology typically does uh, when working with people with chronic pain? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Please. So um, this goes back to sort of um, the traditional things that we assess for as potential treatment targets for people who live with pain. Uh, so at the very start, we always recognize and acknowledge that chronic pain management is complex. It often means people have to change well-ingrained behaviors that they do on a daily basis as habits. It also means introspection and looking in at oneself and and really challenging some sometimes very upsetting and difficult thoughts and feelings. And so it's really difficult. So first and foremost, we recognize that and we try to assess where the person's at to engage in a self-management approach to chronic pain management. And again, um, if somebody falls on that pre-contemplation to contemplation end, then we really try to um, use a motivational communication approach and rely on that person's strengths and move them along the stage of change and see if we can build their readiness to engage in a chronic pain management approach. Now, at the very outset, what we often find is, um, especially if this is early on in somebody's chronic pain trajectory, people may be looking for answers. They may be trying to uncover um, every rock and every stone to find out exactly what's wrong so that way it can be fixed. We usually have this dichotomous view of pain that, you know, it's a signal that there's something wrong or broken that can be fixed and then it's gone. 
in reality, chronic pain is not that simple. Oftentimes, it can't be fixed, and we have to live with it the same way we would live with diabetes or the same way we would live with heart disease. So one of the things that we really look for is where is somebody at in their degree of acceptance of chronic pain? And if they are having difficulty accepting the chronic pain, we never want to remove all hope that there could be a cure, but we really want to also help people move to the notion that you may have to live with chronic pain. That doesn't mean it has to rule your life, but you can still engage in a really meaningful life and focus on uh, behaviors and experiences and activities in your life that are really fun for you despite having some pain. Another thing which we typically look for is how good is somebody at self-monitoring, not just their pain, but the triggers that cause pain, the environmental stimulus that are associated with pain. So self-monitoring is one of those, we say, you know, the, the big um, activities for chronic pain management. And the reason self-monitoring is so important is pain is complex. It so many things in our environment and in our lives are associated with pain. Even take the weather, for example. So now the Weather Network has the osteoarthritis pain index because we know that fluctuations in temperature and humidity in particular can contribute to pain flare-ups. Similarly, the Chinook. So if you're from the Calgary area, you've heard of the Chinooks. You'll have a very warm body of temperature that rolls through during the winter and you'll see highs of plus 20, plus 25 degrees Celsius. Those sharp increases in temperature can actually um, precipitate migraines and headaches from people who experience migraines. So the external um, environment has a huge impact on pain. So too does our internal environment. Maybe we have a uh, difficult interaction with the spouse or with a coworker. Uh, feelings of anger, frustration, the loss of a loved one, uh, you know, feelings of sadness will also contribute to feelings of pain. And so being able to monitor what's going on in our environment and our surrounding and, and also internally can be really helpful for allowing people to get a, a glimpse of what different aspects contribute the most to my experience of pain, because that can be really helpful for managing pain. One of the other uh, really big ones, Maureen, is grief and loss. So oftentimes when people experience chronic pain, they have to limit, or they feel that they have to anyways, limit activities. And so they may actually be engaging in less activities that they really enjoyed. So maybe it's uh, it could be sporting activities, it could be gardening, it could even be social activities too, um, getting out and going out and meeting friends, maybe going for walks around, you know, if you're in Newfoundland, it might be Signal Hill or an area such as that. Those losses of activities have a very real effect on our mood and can result in sadness and grief. So sometimes we have to work with people to overcome grief and, grief and loss and see if there are other meaningful activities that they can still engage in or engage in in a very different way. Yeah. I mean, all of those are such important um, aspects and, and what you're discussing there, Josh, is so important. The other thing that I find is that when you're having these conversations sometimes and maybe there are habits and behaviors that the patient is using that may be actually holding them back, from, reco from recovery or to sort of moving forward. And when we have a discussion around those habits and behaviors and the patient is starting to realize, okay, this is not working anymore. There's almost a, a certain type of, um, like normally we have this, 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 this baseline or this, this way of navigating through life. And then when something disrupts that, it, it feels like the foundation is gone. So there's certain type of loss and grief around that as well. When they start to discover that, 
you know what, maybe there isn't a complete cure for this. Although one would, would assume, especially looking at some of the data around pain reprocessing therapy, that there is more hope than there used to be, even around what the non-invasive neuroimaging is telling us. But there is a, a certain, uh, almost that the patient almost goes backwards a little bit before they go forward. And I always try and tell them that that's just your your body and your your mind just trying to figure out another way forward that's going to be better in terms of long term. I'm not sure if you've had that experience as well. Um, I think, it, yeah, it's not atypical to see people have um, setbacks or even reach plateaus before moving forward again. So, so I would say what you're what you're talking about is very consistent with um, a person's trajectory through their recovery process. Yeah. Um, I mean, and everybody is so, uh, so when they talk about individual specific, that is so powerful because it's so true. Everybody is so different, even though we assume that there's similarities with respect to how this illness behaves. It's everybody is so different in terms of how they respond and how they move forward. So we're running kind of late, Josh, but I just want, there's one thing I love to pick your brain about. It's something I've noticed in the clinic. So another question that commonly comes up in the clinic is the inability to sleep. And obviously there could be multiple factors that impact that. But what I've learned, and I'd be interested in your thoughts of this, is that my, my, it's, it's a great way for me to explore um, uh, somebody's past through sleep. So the question I always come back to the patient with um, is were you ever a good sleeper as a kid? And probably about 40% of patients will actually talk about not being good sleepers as a kid. And it doesn't have to be big adverse childhood experiences that can be something as simple as, you know, bullying in school, or I shouldn't say simple because that can be significant, obviously. But when we look through sleep disruption through the eyes of a child, is that often they can reprogram their brain to stay awake and from their perspective to stay alive. And um, I also do some work in corrections. And this is this comes up because I'm asked all the time for medication to help sleep. And when we kind of go through some of the significant events that have happened in people's lives, you know, often we end up with, with pharmacotherapy that would be something like prazosin, dealing with trauma, things like that. But I, I'm always amazed at how sleep that we... we I don't think we explore in our in our profession, I'm sure for psych, psychologists and psychotherapists, that this is probably a big area of your um, of your healthcare, uh, where you kind of take patients. But I'm surprised that we as a profession, medical profession, we don't explore this enough with patients. We tend to look at, oh, well, let's give you something to help you sleep rather than seeing it as a window into something even bigger. So I'm just curious about your thoughts about that. Yeah, so um, sleep is one of the areas that that I specialize in, the treatment of, of insomnia as well. Um, so I think just, just off of the outset, Maureen, um, so between 60 and 90% of people who experience or live with chronic pain will experience or will report clinically relevant levels of sleep disturbance. And oftentimes that's in the form of insomnia, difficulty initiating, um, maintaining sleep or waking up too early um, beyond what was intended and not being able to fall back asleep, which is associated with uh, very real um, challenges in daily life because it does carry forward. Um, I don't know, like sleep, looking at it as a window, uh, that may be helpful and it may provide you with some really interesting information. But if we look at it, the gold standard treatment for insomnia and most sleep problems uh, is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So if the person doesn't have insomnia, there's been a transdiagnostic um, treatment for sleep that was developed uh, 
by Allison Harvey and colleagues. And so there are some really effective treatments. They are far more effective than pharmacotherapy, especially in the long term. And in many chronic pain clinics that I've worked, I've run sleep groups. Um, we have good evidence from meta-analytic meta data that suggests that the treatment of insomnia among people with pain is just as promising as the treatment of insomnia among people who do not have chronic pain. So I would say you could look at sleep as a window, um, but it, you know it could be really effective to target and treat sleep. There usually is some modifications that have to be made. And for example, sometimes um, infusing a traditional cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia approach with aspects of um, acceptance and mindfulness can be really helpful for quieting down that central nervous system and having people return to sleep and really breaking the usually conditioned associations between arousal and the bed. So I would actually agree with you that we don't pay enough attention to sleep, um, but we also know that people with chronic pain, people who live with chronic pain, about 40 to 45 percent often would meet criteria for sleep apnea. So first and foremost, uh, screening for sleep apnea is probably paramount. And then if it's not driven by um, the inability to take in oxygen during the night, then I would say behavioral, cognitive behavioral approaches to treat sleep problems and insomnia, it would be really beneficial and well worth um, anybody's time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so a lot of the pharmacotherapy that we use actually contribute to central sleep apnea. And, uh, and I think part of it is not really um, having a good conversation with patients about what's realistic about some of the pharmacotherapy that we use. And uh, a lot of the evidence, uh, especially around chronic pain, the, the, the pharma, pharmacology is very limited. Um, so I think what happens a lot of the time is that patients get over-medicated. Um, so it can be more disruptive uh, generally to their sleep for sure. I'm just curious if you have any final thoughts or resources or pearls that you want to put out there that people can look up and um, so that they can uh, use these tools in, in their everyday practice. Um, let me just, I guess, close out on a few things that might be quite helpful. Um, one is, I know that sometimes it can be difficult to communicate one's pain. It's a very um, complex experience. And so oftentimes um, what we do within our realm is we will coach individuals to go into their medical appointments with a clearer agenda and ask clearer questions. So this was developed in cardiac rehabilitation, but it's really useful for chronic pain management too. Uh, we call it PACE. Um, so the P is for providing specific and, and honest information. So we usually ask people to write down their questions and queries before going in and seeing their healthcare professional. The A is for ask specific questions. Um, and, and so we, again, we have them write down the questions that they might have in advance and then to um, also write down questions when they're in the appointment. Uh, and then C is to check their understanding. So after they've heard the information from their provider to really relay it back to make sure that their understanding matches. And this is where sometimes bringing in a loved one or a friend to an appointment can be really helpful because two sets of ears um, can be more helpful. And then the E is for expressing any concerns, because I think a lot of times people could be reticent to express concerns that they have during that appointment, but it's really, really important for them to do so. I think that clarification, I can't stress that enough. It is so important because I think all humans at some level, we have some kind of cognitive bias, either an anchoring bias or, or whatever. But when we hear certain words or certain clues or certain things it takes us to a different place, you know, from our life experiences. So I, f I find more and more I'm finding that I need to ask for clarification, you know, what it is that, that the person is hearing me say. 
um, because oftentimes it's totally misinterpreted. And you'll see this all the time as well in, in the different spaces that I work in, is that somebody will come to us and say, well, so-and-so said this, this is what the problem is. And I'm thinking, there's no way that that individual, and I'll clarify that with the individual, but that's what the person heard, the patient heard. So I think that clarification piece is so important. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right, Maureen. And then so two last things that I will provide as resources for people. Uh, one is Pain Canada has officially launched and Pain Canada is a very reputable um, website that provides resources for people who live with pain, uh, resources for healthcare professionals, and then information for uh, public health and policymakers. So people may find it really helpful to go to Pain Canada and see if there are any resources that they could benefit from. I will also note, maybe a bit prematurely, but as of July um, 2022, we should have what we call the Power Over Pain Portal, which was an electronic platform developed to help people manage their pain. It has both a youth arm and an adult arm, so it will have free resources uh, that are readily available to help people manage pain, and it should be available as of July this year for a soft launch. So I'm going to go ahead and put those two shameless plugs in for um, pain and Canada that's the, with the national program, is it, Josh? Uh, it will be national. Um, yes. As, okay. Yeah, that's correct. Wow. That is awesome. So those are definitely things we can put on the, um, uh, in the podcast, the, the page that we write up that we'll make sure we make those links as well. Perfect. Thanks, Maureen. I think awesome. it will help a lot of people. Well, I, I just think it's, I mean, there's some things that are moving in the right direction. Um, the Canadian Pain Task Force did such an amazing job bringing all of this uh, data together. And I'm so grateful to see that they're actually using that to, to, to develop some action so that we're seeing things and trying to come together as a country, standardizing some resources and some access to care. So thanks for being a big part of that as well, Josh. That's wonderful that you're, you're able to participate in that and represent us all. <laughs> from yes, the Atlantic very, region. <laughs> well, absolutely, and very humbled just to be a part of that. So I think there's going to be a lot of action coming over the next five to ten Wonderful. years as well. Awesome. Keep me updated. <laughs> I absolutely will. Okay, Josh, take care. All okay. right, bye, Maureen. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.